and welcome to In the Interest of National Security. I'm Professor Ryan Vogel, Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. And I'm Professor Jonathan Rudd, Associate Director of the Center. Our guest today is John McClure. John was recently hired as the Deputy Director of the Center for National Security Studies. He has a master's degree in terrorism studies from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. John also studied political science and Russian at UVU. While attending UVU, he participated in several global forums, including the United Nations Rio Plus 20 in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 2012. In his professional career, John was an intelligence analyst for the Utah State Department of Public Safety, where he worked in the state's fusion center, which is formerly known as the Statewide Information and Analysis Center, or SIAC. He also served on the Salt Lake FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, or JTTF, where he focused on domestic terrorism. In addition to this, John was an intelligence analyst for Salt Lake County's Emergency Management Division, where he worked on a number of projects to include the development of a response plan to a complex coordinated terrorist attack. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. John, thanks for being here today. We like to give our listeners a flavor for different career paths that are available to them in the area of national security. And you have certainly had an interesting career um, can you tell us a little bit about your educational background and and your career path? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Educational background started um, back in Illinois. Um, man, how long ago? Well over 20 years ago, I started going to school just because uh, that's what was expected of me, right? Um, started taking, you know, uh, just general education courses, trying to find what I was interested in. Um, at that point in time, I think I was about 19 years old, I was studying film. So uh, security, terrorism studies was, you know, nowhere in the forefront of my brain at the time. Uh, just film and editing and sound and uh, that type of thing just fascinated me at the time. Um, you know, fast forward into my my mid twenties, I developed a, a business completely unrelated, um, uh, fitness and nutrition, and it was a successful business. Um, but, uh, a certain couple of things happened, um, during my twenties. The first was in 2001, um, and the nine 11 attacks. Now I know everybody has a story or somebody they know that has some type of involvement. Everybody remembers what they were doing at that point in time. Um, that specific incident really opened my eyes. Uh, I was 20 years old at the time. And my sister, uh, she was working in the financial district at the time of the attacks. Uh, she'd lived there for almost 10 years, her and her husband. And um, I remember uh, just seeing everything unfolding on the news and trying to get through and call her just to find out if she was okay. No answers whatsoever. Um, you know, a lot of people had similar experiences, but you know, this was my first introduction to terrorism whatsoever that I'd even paid attention to in my life. So I paid attention to it, uh, became interested in, you know, the concept of terrorism. What is that? And then, um, just kind of, again, forgot about it. I was in my 20s. I was working, um, living a, a happy life and, you know, it wasn't affecting me anymore. My sister was fine, so I didn't care. So fast forward to 2005. 
my sister and her husband had moved to London. That's where he's from. Um, and on July 7th, there was a complex coordinated terrorist attack that are known as the 7-7 bombings. Um, my sister and her husband had gotten in an argument that morning before they were supposed to leave for work. And the argument went on so long that he missed his train. His train was one of the trains attacked in the 7-7 bombings. At that point in time, I'm like, okay, what is this terrorism thing? And, and is this the same group as before? Are there different groups of terrorists? What, why do they do what they do? And I remember within the next two years, um, I literally woke up one day and I said to my fiance at the time and to myself, I go, I want to go back to school and I, I really want to catch bad guys. You know, I can't put my finger on why, um, why that day, but I did. And um, within a month, I was enrolled at UVU and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I, I hit the ground running. I was a more um, mature student, both literally and figuratively. And uh, I just, you know, I outworked every single person you know, that I went to school with. I took advantage of every single opportunity that was made available to me. Um, I was able to, you know, get published in a number of different journals as an undergrad. Um, I was very specific in my focus in um, security studies and, um, you know, the way political violence impacted comparative politics. And man, I just, I just ran with it um, to the point where you know, I think I was doing, you know, between 25 to 35 credits per semester. I got special, um, you know, permission from the deans to do so. And they just let me run. I was working directly with the professors every semester, um, working on research, uh, traveling, giving presentations, um, running student organizations. So by the time I graduated, um, man, there was just no question the trajectory I wanted to keep going in. It was, you know, security and terrorism studies. So I applied to uh, a number of different graduate programs and ultimately uh, decided on St. Andrews. They were literally the university that pioneered the study of terrorism. Um, uh, since then, other organizations such as, you know, Georgetown have adopted that specific program and training. And, um, man, that was just my, my dream come true. So again, uh, you know, packed the bags and, you know, made the trip across the pond and started studying terrorism under, you know, some of the most, you know, brilliant minds on the planet. And that was just, uh, man, uh, an invaluable experience. Uh, never forget that. Uh, taught me how to research, uh, taught me how to write, taught me how to keep my mouth shut and listen. And, you know, some of the best lessons I could possibly learn in life. Um, so I uh, did my master's program there. Uh, moved back to the States, um, I think in 2013, where I just finished working on my dissertation. And, you know, was just kind of working full time to support a family. And uh, I remember, you know, right after I graduated, just writing, you know, filling out applications and kind of looking at what was available for the field of terrorism and the field of, you know, intelligence within the state of Utah. 
you know, right after graduation, even, even while I was going to school, I thought that, okay, you know, I'm going to have to end up in DC. I'm going to have to start applying for jobs. And I did, you know, I had, I had interviews for, you know, different, you know, uh, alphabet soup agencies. Um, ultimately, you know, I just came back to Utah and started looking here. So I, you know, randomly got this, uh, tip from a law enforcement friend of mine and said, Hey, the state fusion center is, is hiring for an analyst. And it's like, what's a fusion center? He's like, I don't know, but I know they're hiring and they're hiring intelligence analysts. So you know, for the listeners out there that don't know what a fusion center is, um, you know, after the nine 11 attacks, uh, when the, um, you know, nine 11 commission reports came out, federal state, local law enforcement all realized that there was a, a disconnect, um, in information sharing between federal state, local law enforcement and other, you know, information sharing entities, um, uh, disconnect that was, was so great that, you know, the attacks might very well have been disrupted had there been some type of standard of information sharing between all these different agencies. So since then, um, all 50 states have uh, adopted um, the, the Department of Homeland Security sponsored um, fusion centers, which are essentially a conduit of information sharing. They take in information from federal law enforcement, state law enforcement, local law enforcement, private sector, and they take all this information and they decide, okay, which law enforcement agency or which, you know, entity belonging to, you know, this, this amalgam here would benefit best from this information. So information that comes in from Department of, of Homeland Security trickles all the way down to local law enforcement if it's going to be beneficial for them and, and vice versa. Um, it's been extremely effective. Um, but that's, that's kind of how I found my way in there. You know, it's just, it was available and the concept blew my mind that something like that existed here in Utah. So I took advantage. Um, I, yeah. No, that's great. I think, you know, it's interesting. Students come into my office almost every day, um, asking about, you know, how do I become an FBI agent? How do I get into the FBI? And one of the things I'm constantly telling them, of course, I'm a little biased and I'm like, Hey, that's a great goal. You should do it. But I also like to just open up their mind to the fact that, look, there's a number of other federal agencies and opportunities that are much broader than just one agency. And what I love about this is, is opening up students' minds to the idea that not only at the federal level, but at the state level as well, there's opportunities to be involved in national security, national security related fields. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, like I said, it, it just, uh, I was amazed that something like this existed, uh, you know, working with federal partners, but in a state position, um, kind of took me a while to, to wrap my mind around how everything worked or how that could possibly work. But, you know, I, I, I just dove in, um, you know, once I started working for that fusion center, uh, our, our current chief at the time was a retired FBI agent. You had a really strong background in terrorism, uh, working with the FBI and, uh, man, what, what a great mentor. Um, he encouraged every idea that I had, uh, every idea for, you know, uh, writing professional products, papers, um, uh, regional reports, anything like that. You know, he, um, he trusted me, trusted my training. Um, the expertise and just let me 
run with it. And I did. Um, so I got to work on a lot of really good projects to the point where, um, you know, visited me and he said, Hey, uh, I think you'd be a good fit for the FBI joint terrorism task force. Uh, you know, the Salt Lake city field office. And it's like, okay, what's, what's that? And he's like, you won't know until you go to work with them. It's like, all right. So essentially they just, you know, uh, you know, they kept paying my salary, but kind of hit me out to the, to the fed side now, so to speak. So, um, what was great was I got to essentially work with someone just like me, you know, uh, an analyst, the guy who, you know, just takes in information all day. Um, but from a different source. So, uh, got to be, you know, really good friends with him and, and learned quite a bit from him. Um, but essentially just doing the same thing I did for the state, but on the federal side, um, what was different about it though, is we got to work on major cases, you know, these big cases that you would see in the news. And, um, we got to, you know, uh, take in information about, you know, real live terrorists that had been identified and, you know, we're in a process of, of being surveilled and, you know, we got to be the ones that, you know, dictated what information coming in on these individuals was, was credible and, you know, getting that back to our, our supervisors and, and, and other analysts. And man, it was just amazing to just be a cog in that machine right there and, and see how that worked. Um, but again, worked on some great initiatives, uh, did some, a lot of outreach, public outreach with the JTTF. Um, and geez, fast forward, uh, five years, I worked in that position with the state. And at one point in time, uh, I was doing a presentation, um, on behalf of the fusion center, uh, just a, a public presentation. And one of the other presenters came up to me after and said, Hey, uh, just let me introduce myself. You know, I'm so-and-so with, uh, Salt Lake County. Division of Emergency Management. It's like, oh, okay. What do you do? You know, and he kind of told me, I'm like, oh, cool. He's like, yeah, we're opening a spot for an intelligence analyst. And I go, really? What's an intelligence analyst going to do for Salt Lake County? And he said, I don't know, but we got the money for one. I was like, okay, you know, just kind of had a chuckle with him. And he's like, well, we got this grant from DHS. And he started talking about complex coordinated terrorist attacks and you know, he didn't quite grasp all the concepts, but he goes, we need somebody that does grasp the concept of this to come in and tell us how to, you know, use this grant and, and develop a, a response plan. And so I'm like, okay, okay, send me over some more information. And, you know, uh, and he did, and I did my due diligence. So evidently, um, Salt Lake County, uh, the Division of Emergency Management got a grant for $1.3 million to uh, hire individuals with intelligence background and have them develop a response plan, a countywide response plan to a complex coordinated terrorist attack. So, um, you know, I studied this, I'd researched it. Um, I, I, I had written papers on this. I, I you know, uh, worked with professors on stuff like this and I felt really comfortable. So I applied and yeah, they, they snatched me up. And um, again, it was a, uh, uh, in the onset, a really good working environment for me. They kind of, you know, didn't know what they needed, but, you know, gave me the ball and just told me to run with it. And, and I did. So you know, ultimately created a, uh, you know, a document, you know, adopted by countywide stakeholders, partners, uh, a lot of partners, you know, statewide have adopted the document. 
um, trained first responders uh, in this document, um, developed different policy over the course of, the, of a few years. Um, just there was a lot. There's a lot that went on, um, you know, in that local government level, that county level that I didn't realize went on, you know, the, the, the preparation that takes place, you know, I experienced at the federal and the state level. And then now, you know, moving, you know, even farther down, you know, um, into county. And again, just there are so many opportunities there that I had not realized. There's so much preparation for, you know, the mitigation of man-made threats going on, you know, within our state, within our county that I didn't realize. And again, just big eye-opener there. So, John, you just talked about this. You spent some time in emergency management, especially that that specialty in terrorism on the state level. Mm-hmm. How does the state work to prevent terrorism? And, and what role does your experience in intelligence analysis play in this? So, um, the state and the county kind of work in concert in preparation, you know, the mitigation for man-made threats. Um, you know, Salt Lake City, the biggest city in the state, resides within Salt Lake County. So, you know, population-wise, it makes sense for, you know, state agencies to adopt county-level, you know, policy or plans, things of that nature. So how do they prepare for this? Um, essentially, it's through an initial document created, which is, you know, what we did. And then exercise. So after creation of this document, um, we had to exercise the plan. So this was in a number of different forms. You know, we had uh, tabletop exercises of the course of um, years that brought different first responders, uh, private sector partners, you know, into like individual or, you know, private groups like Red Cross or, um, you know, different local municipalities, you know, representation, you know, mayors, city planners, um, all these people come to the table because we have to go over these different concepts. Okay. Not just what happens when there's a, a terrorist attack, but how do you recover from that? So for example, we'll do a, a case study with, um, leadership with throughout the County, um, uh, local leadership throughout the County. And we'll use a case study um, like the Las Vegas mass shooting that happened in October, October 1st, you know, just a few years ago. So what did we have happen? Ultimately, you know, we had, you know, a, a lone offender that had multiple weapons and, you know, he fired on an open crowd, right? So what was the end result of this? We had people that were getting shot and dying right there. We had people that were getting shot and fleeing the scene, not knowing what hospitals to go to. We had people that were getting shot, that were getting onto airport airplanes, flying back home to different states, and then going to hospitals there. But you had all of this different confusion, which, you know, local law enforcement, um, first responders, um, hospitals, they'd never dealt with before. So how do you recover from something like that, you know? Um, those are, those are all the different kinds of things that we had to take into consideration, you know, for months and months after this incident, you know, you had, um, first responders, um, from every walk of life still, you know, trying to get families through the reunification process of, you know, remains or personal belongings. This is, these are things that most, you know, um, uh, local officials, you know, mayors, they, they don't think about. 
in an incident. You know, they think about initial response. So, you know, response plan goes over every aspect from a minute initial attack to, you know, first responder response to that attack to, you know, the recovery and the reunification phases. There's a lot that goes into it. Excellent. You know, it's interesting, John, because you've had the opportunity to be both at the fusion center at the state level, as well as in a joint terrorism task force at the federal level. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you saw as maybe some of the similarities of working in those two environments and also what maybe the major differences were. Oh, man. So I don't know. I can only speak to my experience um, from what I hear, uh, you know, on the federal level. So FBI, that's the organization that I work most closely with. Um, they don't necessarily have the best reputation nationwide of, of working well with others as far as like local law enforcement. Sometimes they have a reputation of, you know, coming in and just taking over. Um, that wasn't the case with the Salt Lake City field office. So um, my experience with them is they are incredibly proactive in every sense of that term. Um, they work so well hand in hand with law enforcement. So the Joint Terrorism Task Force that I worked on was comprised of, you know, federal law enforcement, state law enforcement, local law enforcement, um, and then, you know, analysts such as myself. Um, I think even in the last few years, they, uh, they, they picked up people from fire department to come on to the JTTF and work. But that's just that type of, you know, progressive attitude that that field office had. You know, they, they made sure and invited the fusion center that I worked for to um, uh, planning meetings when they did, when they do something every year called uh, threat manding, where they go over, you know, okay, what are the key threats that we're going to focus on in our area of operation this year? You know, we were right there, you know, holding their hand every step of the way and vice versa. So as far as what was different work-wise between federal and state, man, there was such a great marriage between federal, state, and local law enforcement here within the state of Utah that, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot. Um, you know, my supervisor was different when I was at the field office. My supervisor was different when I was at the fusion center office, but that was about it. You know, the projects were, were very much the same when everything, when anything of interest came across my desk working in the fusion center, you know, it was just a, a quick connect to, to reach out and pass that along to the FBI and, and the same, you know, I'd be sitting at my desk at the fusion center, FBI would get something like, Hey, John, you know, will you take a look at this? And, you know, it just was a great relationship. And I think that's the, the best way, you know, information flows and how intelligence should work. Yeah. It's interesting when, you know, I was in the FBI both before and after nine 11 and, and the difference that I saw, um, with regard to more collaboration and information sharing. Uh, it certainly was my experience that, you know, the federal, state, and local agencies all really understood the importance if we're going to be proactive and, and stop these events of having to work together. And so it sounds like that's the experience you had as well. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Intelligence is something that your average Utah might not be thinking about, especially when it comes to public safety. And here at the Center for National Security Studies, we have an in-house internship program called the Open Source Intelligence Center, where students intern for local law enforcement and use open source intelligence to provide law enforcement with actionable information. From your experience and your opinion, how is open source intelligence a valuable asset to local law enforcement? 
Man, I think open source intelligence is uh, a valuable asset for local law enforcement, state law enforcement, federal law enforcement. Um, I've done some of my, you know, most memorable work through open source intelligence. I mean, um, just an example here. So I remember when I was working for the State Fusion Center, right? Um, there was this nationwide military exercise going on called Operation Jade Helm, which basically, um, now they bring, well, they brought special forces uh, from different areas around the country to Utah to, you know, engage in some exercises. So it took months of preparation. Um, you know, they had to bring different vehicles out. You know, I even saw like pictures or images of them bringing uh, tanks out by trains and stuff like that. And there was even some, you know, covert type exercises and, and operations going on in the state. But what was really interesting at the time was a lot of the local residents here in the state of Utah. Uh, I'll just say uh, a lot of them were rural. Um, they were under the impression that the military was coming here to take over and uh, instate martial law and take away their rights. And this was, this was the, this was the takeover, right? So um, it was my job to watch all the people that were wearing those tinfoil hats and look out for any potential threats. So what was really interesting is that through open source intelligence, just, you know, going on a hunch, um, multiple hunches, but just looking through social media and the discussions that were going on and scraping through this information, I found this, you know, network of, of, of individuals that formed this group that were, um, word I'm looking for, they were extremely well-organized, um, and were performing, you know, counter surveillance on our government and our military here in the state of Utah that were getting ready for these exercises. So they had people that were, you know, undercover that were showing up that were uh, taking uh, photographs and videos of military installations of, you know, people in uniform. And then they had talk about how they were going to respond to these individuals, you know, in the event of the takeover. And it got to the point where um, it's like, oh, my gosh, they're they're not just talking about this anymore. So, um, you know, I further integrated myself into, you know, these online chat rooms and delving into this, you know, network of these individuals performing counter surveillance and, you know, come to find out, yeah, this was a real issue for national security. And, uh, you know, uh, I got to do uh, a really amazing uh, report on what I found. And this was, you know, to the Undersecretary of Department of Homeland Security and even worked its way up. And it was just a, a really good moment in my career to, you know, see how, see, see the value in open source intelligence and, you know, just the, the value of the information that's just sitting out there that can be accessed by anybody, but most times just goes unnoticed, which I think is amazing that you know, UVU and the Center for National Security Study has a program that focuses on, you know, harvesting this or capitalizing on this open source information. I mean, that's, that's where everything is when it comes to human intelligence. Um, I've 
disrupted plots for mass shootings. I've disrupted school shootings all through open source intelligence and all by just going down that rabbit hole on a hunch. And this is something only a, a person can do. And it's not something that, you know, you just know how to do. It's something that, you know, you're, you're taught and you learn and um, you, you hone that craft and you, you get good at it. So the fact that we provide a, a certificate for that at the center and are preparing these students to, you know, with these skills to go out and just out into the job market and start doing that right away, I think is, you know, nothing short of miraculous. Yeah. I think it's what, what we're hearing from both public and private sector professionals is that this is something that has been neglected for too long. And, and even in the federal context where, you know, the, the, um, the go-to has always been classified, right? To, to use classified information. I think open source is becoming more and more um, a valuable resource. And then for those that are coming in, a valuable experience set and skill mm-hmm. set that, uh, that really differentiates them from the competition. Oh, I absolutely agree. You know, John, I think it's, it's been great to have you on the podcast. One, to really give us a view from, from the state's uh, state perspective versus more of a national national security uh, perspective. But also, I have a lot of students that often come in and they say, oh, I want to be a special agent or I want to be a detective. And, and I always like to tell them, look, there's a broad range of positions within state and federal governments like an intelligence analyst. So I think this has been great to, to hear your perspective as an intelligence analyst and see how much a part of the overall system uh, you know, how all these different individuals work together to get the job done. So as a final question, do you have any advice for students and young professionals who may be interested in becoming an intelligence analyst? Um, yes, uh, two pieces of advice. The first, take advantage of every single resource you have available to you existing at the university. Um, I'm talking about, you know, certificates in, in open source intelligence. I'm talking about student organizations. I'm talking about um, getting published. Uh, honing your writing skills as an undergraduate is, is, is an invaluable tool. Um, and then the second piece of advice is don't limit yourself. There are so many different job opportunities within the state of Utah. Um, look to your professors. Um, ask them, you know, what exists here? I know just since I've been here in the, in the, the, the few months that, that I've been here at the Center for National Security Studies, um, I've seen so many opportunities for students to engage with potential employers um, within the field of intelligence. And um, I don't see, you know, that pipeline, you know, shutting off anytime soon. You know, they see the caliber of students that are coming out of the CNSS, and I think it's only going to get better. So again, for students... Take advantage of every opportunity, hone your craft prior to graduation. And then the second thing and the follow-up is ask questions, ask where to apply. And again, don't limit yourself. There's a lot here, a lot available. And, you know, having that name Center for National Security Studies attached to your, your resume, it's going to have a lot of weight. John, thank you very much. It's been a a great podcast interview and um, we're so glad to have you on the team. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast soon. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you. 
This has been another episode of In the Interest of National Security. Our guest has been Deputy Director John McClure. The views expressed in this show are those of the hosts or our guests and not necessarily Utah Valley University or the Center for National Security Studies. Today's episode was produced by Ian McDonald, Malik Rowe, Kayla Lay, and Henry Waltheus with audio production by Thomas Rowe. The music was created and performed by Parker Rudd. Follow us on Instagram at iins.podcast to receive news and updates regarding future content. And please join us by subscribing at Spotify, Apple Podcast, or Google Podcast. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time on In the Interest of National Security.